Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Sydney. And this week's episode on coral reef acoustics is to dive for. Hey, Sydney. Hi, Haley. How's it going? It's going. How are you? I am tired, but good. Um, You got some ocean news for us today? I do. I found out this week Julie Gavorgian and her team at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography uh, have discovered over 19,000 undersea volcanoes and seamounts. Whoa. Yeah, they're found at the bottom of the ocean, obviously, using satellite data. Um, And this is interesting because only like 20% of the ocean floor has been mapped by ships. And there's a lot of different methods that are used to map the seafloor, including ships, as well as um, obviously satellite data. But as we kind of like move further into the 21st century, we're developing more advanced tools to map the seafloor and hopefully going to get a lot more information about it in the coming years. Yeah, it also sounds like people just haven't been out and about and mapping the seafloor either. Yeah. Like, considering only 20% of the ocean floor has been mapped by ships. Yeah, it's definitely crazy. Um, It says here in this article that um, some of these seamounts can rise anywhere from 3 to 10 kilometers, so about 2 to 6 miles off the seafloor. So these are huge mountains. Um, And then there's also some smaller ones, but those are a little harder to find using this satellite uh, imaging method. That's so wild. Did they say, like, where specifically they found these? Um, It doesn't look like it shows exactly where these are. I think they might be in, like, a variety of different places across the seafloor. But I'm not exactly sure where the ones they discovered are. What I did think was interesting is that they use something called satellite altimetry, which means they're measuring the difference between the distance from the satellite to the bottom of the ocean Mm -hmm. as opposed to, like, the sea surface, which is what a lot of our satellites are looking at. It's, like, sea surface things that are happening. But this one basically is measuring the distance from the land that's underneath the surface to that satellite. So it can use that math to calculate how high the mountains are and things like that. Hmm. Super cool. Yeah. Me being a biologist, I wonder what animals are down there. I know, I was just thinking about that. I was like, well, also, we don't know where exactly they found them, but it probably depend on the region, but I'm over here sitting, thinking about all the corals and different critters that would be on them. Yeah, well, and depending how deep they are, it really may not vary that much with region of the planet, you know? Cause yeah, that's a Fun fact for all of you guys out here who don't know this, but... The vast majority of the ocean is about four degrees Celsius, which is just barely above freezing. Um, And that's because the vast majority of the ocean lies underneath that warm surface layer that we all swim in and scuba dive in and all that stuff. So (laughs) um, that was a little intervention by the podcat. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, so the vast majority of the ocean is cold and dark. Not warm and sunny like right. we like to think. So I, I bet you there's some really crazy cold, dark critters down there. Super cool. Speaking of sea mounts and 
deep environments. What are we doing this week? <laughs> we are getting ready to head out on our research cruise. We'll be headed to the Flower Garden Banks National Marine Sanctuary, um, which is made up of several different salt domes where corals have settled. And so um, it's super interesting environments. And we specifically have a team of tech divers that are going to go down and take some samples and measurements and things off of the reef down there. Uh, below the recreational dive limit so really cool stuff yeah i'm so excited so we're releasing this episode the day before we go off the grid <laughs> in the middle of the gulf of mexico and then hopefully we'll be releasing a another episode for you guys while we are off the grid but uh if if all goes to hell in a handbasket, we're sorry in advance <laughs> <laughs> oh man how have you been I'm I'm doing good. We both graduated yes. last week. Uh, Haley missed graduation. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't told anyone. Yet. I know, but she graduated. I did graduate. Um, for anyone who's listening to this who I haven't told, I'm sorry, but yeah, I basically got all the way to graduation. Well, so we drove down to graduation, and on the way down, one of our Airbnbs that we were planning on staying at that night became available to check in, and so. We were like, okay, we'll just drop off all of our stuff because we didn't want to have, like, dive gear with us anyway at graduation sitting in a hot parking lot. So we were like, we'll just drop off our dive gear and then head down to graduation. Well, I got all the way to graduation another hour south before realizing that I didn't have my cap and gown. Um, And at the point that I realized it, I would have been, like, 20 minutes late to graduation. And I just decided that instead of stressing everyone in my family out and myself out... I was just going to enjoy what I had of the day anyway, instead of trying to force it to be something that was just going to be more stressful than it was worth. Yep. So, um, but yeah. we're masters. We are masters, guys. I I did do it. I didn't walk, but I did. <laughs> You'd never know it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's been crazy, and I just I finally confirmed that I will be the. Um, research fellow at the Central Caribbean Marine Institute for the next six months. Yay! So I will be living in Little Cayman, and I'll be coming to you guys live from there, hopefully, with any luck. Um, Yeah. We'll see about the Wi-Fi, but... (laughs) I know. And the timing of recording will be very interesting, considering you'll be there, and I'll be across the entire globe. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, interesting months to come, everybody, but uh, stay tuned and and stick around. We promise it'll be a wild ride, but hopefully a good one. Yeah, and we have lots of amazing episodes to release, the first of which is happening right now. now. (laughs) Okay, so Sydney and I are at a conference this week. We are at the Benthic Ecology meeting in Miami, and as a result, we have access to some of the most brilliant minds in marine science. So we're bringing a couple of really awesome interviews to you guys for the next couple of weeks. We're pretty stoked. So exciting. Our first one, our first special guest of the conference is here, ready to introduce themselves. 
Do you want to let us know your name and pronouns? Sure. My name is Nadej Aoki, and I use she, her pronouns. Awesome. Nadej. Okay. It's French, right? Yes. Okay, First cool. name's French and last name's Japanese. Very oh, cool. wow. Okay. Is that like, does that reflect on like your personal heritage? It do, the, yes. Well, the Japanese reflects my father's side of the family is Japanese, and um, the French reflects my family um, has a lot of French friends, and my parents went to France. Very Ooh, cool. You know? That's super yeah. fun. Oh, nice. Do you speak French or anything? A bit. Um, I studied it a lot in school and then have forgotten a lot since. That's fair. Our, our third roommate is from Quebec, mm-hmm. and she speaks French, so we were like, maybe we need her help. Nothing. <laughs> really, Flavie will know how to say this name. Yeah. It'll be perfect. Um, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I was the same way with Spanish. I went to school, learned a lot of Spanish, and then have since not practiced a lot. So no, it's and it's even you just forget all the vocabulary mm-hmm. and all of the like ease of it. And mm-hmm. right now we have we have a lot of French investigators at Woods Hole. Oh. We have a French postdoc in my lab, and I know a lot of other French people. But I'm always very intimidated to actually <laughs> yeah. try to use it with yeah. the native speakers because they speak English so much better than I speak French. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. we've encountered that for sure. I I was on an airplane. This is like an aside, but I was I was on an airplane coming home from ICRS last year, Mm -hmm. um, and this boy from Poland was coming Mm -hmm. to a some sort of a English speaking academy or something here in Miami, and he was like, "Yes, I'm coming here so that I can learn better English because my English currently is not very like beautiful, right?" And I was like. I was like, I just want to let you know, like, when I say I can speak Spanish, I don't mean, like, like you can <laughs> yeah. speak English, right? And he was like, currently I struggle because I don't know whether I should use words like the restroom or the washroom. And I'm like, I, you know what? I don't even know, like, multiple words for the same thing in other languages. So yeah. I'm already impressed. Yeah. <laughs> like, you're a step ahead, my oh friend. My gosh, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. Is it a flat or is it an apartment? <sighs> wow. <laughs> Yeah. Not important. Right? <laughs> you will survive. Okay. So, where are you from and where do you live now? You said you work at Woods Hole? Yes. Um, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, or we shorten it to HUI a lot just because that's easier to say. Um, so, that is a marine research institute um, on Cape Cod, on like the very southern tip of Cape Cod. And I live there now in Woods Hole Village. Previously, I'm originally from Northern Virginia, sort of DC suburbs. Okay. Um, went to undergrad in upstate New York, moved back to Virginia for a little while, and then did um, my graduate degree. Started in Cambridge because Woods Hole takes graduate students technically through MIT as well as mm. Woods Hole. It's a joint graduate program between wow. the two. So a lot of students will start living in Cambridge and take classes for a year or two, and then if their advisor is on the Cape, they'll move to Cape Cod. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah. That's so amazing. Yeah. So it's a lot of jumping around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where did you go to school in upstate New York? I'm from upstate. Oh, I went to Cornell in Ithaca. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. like two hours from me. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. And my mom went to, got her undergrad degree at the University of Rochester, So we're, and she also went to Cornell for her master's. That's awesome. So. Wow. Yeah, that's right in my neck of the woods. I yeah. love it up there. It's so beautiful. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Ithaca is especially beautiful. So you're out on the Cape all the time now, mm-hmm. right? And you yep. get to be on the water a whole lot, I presume? Yeah, I actually, well, yes, in that everyone on the Cape, especially now that it's getting to be summer, it's yes. like people are going to be 
out on the water or fishing, paddle boarding, kayaking, um, or just I live like a two minute drive from the beach. So oh, it's nice wow. to be able to just yeah. like take a walk on the beach after work. Um, but the mo- I get into the water the most when I'm actually doing field work. Um, and most of my field work is in the Caribbean. So I don't know if I said, but I'm a PhD student at Woods Hole Oceanographics Institution. My advisor is Aaron Mooney, who runs a lab that's focused on sensory ecology and bioacoustics. So we wow. think about like how animals in the ocean hear, how they are, um, produce sound, how they respond to sound, and how it affects their behavior and ecology. That's, that's super fascinating. So you spend a lot of time on the water. How did it all start? How did you, what drew you to the water? I think I've always, I've always been really interested in animals, like very, as a kid, like watched a lot of nature documentaries and David Mm. Attenborough and that kind of thing. Um, I like always liked going to the beach with my family. Our sort of typical summer vacation would be like get a beach house in Delaware or Virginia Beach or North Carolina or something and just, you know, spend a week there. But um, it's, it kind of had, I had sort of a very circuitous path, I think, to actual marine science. I think I started out studying and thinking I wanted to be a veterinarian or a doctor or just something biological and something related to living things. Um, But I first got kind of involved with marine research as an undergrad when I did um, an REU, a research experience for undergraduates, right? that was actually at the Smithsonian Natural History Museum. Oh, okay. And I was working with a professor there, or a faculty member there, who studies deep sea worms, deep sea polychaetes, mm. um, and other like marine invertebrates in the deep sea. And so I like got involved in ocean work there, but it was all ROV data. So it was all like cruises and like video footage of these like crazy, you know, annelids and like larvations and whatever like moving around in the deep sea so it was all like I was working on the ocean but like from a computer um (laughs) and then I actually like then actually got sort of physically involved in coastal ecology work in grad school I think that's super cool and also a really important thing to highlight for listeners is just that not everybody um I'll say this actually differently not just not everybody almost nobody just goes straight into, like, comes out of the womb deciding they want to be a marine scientist, right? Like, a lot of people have this circuitous route. Um, And even if you do come out of the womb knowing you want to be a marine scientist, it it takes a variety of different paths and forms. Mm -hmm. And I know, like, Sydney originally wanted to do a lot of sea turtle work. Yeah, I applied Mm -hmm. to grad school for sea turtles and corals, and then made my decision that I want to do corals last minute. Yeah. So it's it's not always a direct route and that's super okay because it exposes you to so many things along the way that you get to like pick up and take into your profile or your portfolio as a scientist or as a diver. Um, and then it kind of makes you a unique character in the scene, you know? So yeah. that circuitous route is not a bad thing. It's actually something that gives you a lot of unique experiences to bring mm-hmm. into future Uh, jobs and and efforts, research projects. Yeah, and I think for marine biologists, there's almost, I mean, there's sort of like, I don't know if anybody has done this to you guys probably, but you say to somebody like a friend of a friend, oh, I'm a marine biologist. They're like, oh, I wanted it to be a marine biologist when I was was little. But then like, oh, but then I found out like, 
I, how to get a real job or something, yeah. you know, it's always yeah. something a little bit backhanded. Yeah. Like, um, oh, but and there then is, I decided I wanted to make money. Yeah. Like, <laughs> okay. But there is this sort of idea that, like, as marine biologists, we're sort of, like, living out our childhood dreams, which, like, a lot of us are. And I will say that I, like, this is, you know, I love my work and I feel mm-hmm. very privileged to do it. But it's also, um, I've definitely met people who kind of knew they wanted to be in the ocean from an early age and kind of, like, got the experiences and were very like single-minded in that Mm -hmm. and then I've definitely met people and I definitely fall I think on the other side where I had like a love of nature and a love of science but was very sort of like open and you know Mm -hmm. I worked like an entomology lab I like did some policy work after undergrad I was very much kind of like I care about the ocean and I care about these ecosystems but I it took me a while to figure out like this is where I want to kind of slot in that's so cool. I think it's also important to note that once, like, it seems like a lot of us specialize, but you aren't stuck in that field. Like, if I study coral spawning, I'm, I can't only study coral spawning for the rest of my life. I can go apply that to lobsters or mm-hmm. something completely different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You said you worked in an entomology lab. Will you mm-hmm. define entomology? Oh, yes. The study of insects. So I, my very first job in any kind of science lab was um, my first summer of college. I was like kind of just looking for basically for a summer internship to mm-hmm. pay me something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ended up working in a lab that studies invasive beetles and other invasive insect species. And they were testing like if you could use... Um, a fungal like fungal insecticides mm. like the, I think oh, it's yeah. actually the same it's similar to um kind of the the cordyceps fungus like you know okay. that's kind yes. of in the, in the news because of the last of us I don't think that was the exact one but there are these funguses basically that if insects walk over them they like pick up the spores and then they like grow and like burst the insect yeah. and it's like so the idea is like if you spray it on vulnerable trees and stuff, can you get the like invasive Asian longhorn beetles to walk over them and then die? And that's oh. like it's like better than using a chemical insect yeah. insecticide. Um, so yeah, so I got to work in like an insect quarantine facility for that, wow. where they had like the invasive beetles, and you had to go in and like check yourself, and make sure you weren't carrying any beetles or any other bugs yeah. in or out. Um, so yeah, and it was cool. And I was like, oh, this is like I'm. I enjoyed it. I like the field work. I like didn't really mind the bugs. They were fine. But at the end of it, I was like, this is not what I want to do. Yeah. yeah. That's, That's such a unique I experience. Yeah. I love that. Oh, I love the so reference good. too. I immediately thought of the last of us right? and reading all those scientific papers related to it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. So you mentioned that you're a PhD student at Woods Hole. Mm-hmm. Will you tell us specifically what you're studying and, um, yeah, get into a little bit about what your dissertation is on. Sure, yeah. Um, it's, I've only sort of figured it out in the last year. I'm in my third year now, and okay. I think, like many people, I went to the PhD with sort of a vague idea of what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I was interested in invertebrates, interested in corals, and my advisor has been involved with this long-term monitoring study of a lot of coral reef sites in the Virgin Islands. So mm-hmm. we have a few sites in the National Park there where we've been putting down hydrophones, which are basically just underwater microphones, so you can record the acoustic environment. And he's been doing that for, since like 2012, so oh, almost, and trying to keep it almost continuous. So wow. like every six months or so, a team goes down and swaps out the hydrophones, offloads the data, and collects it. So we have obviously- like Almost a decade. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's so much data. Um, and at the same time, we do like surveys of the benthos and the corals and the fish. and 
Also, we work with a microbial lab that's taking water samples. So also we're trying to kind of come up with a bunch of different different sampling methods for assessing the health of those reefs over time. And when I came in, we had um, a postdoc who had just left the lab who had been, as, as her dissertation, she had done work on like oysters and sound and um, whether or not sound is a settlement cue for oysters. Um, and she came to our lab and did that for corals as well. So settlement is the process by which baby corals um, find where to live. So baby corals like are these little guys that can swim in the water column and they float around and then eventually they drop down and like crawl around on the substrate and then stick and grow into their you know adult polyform, right? And the process by which that happens is like complex and we don't really know all the things that are triggering it, but we know that they respond to chemicals and I'm very interested in seeing if they can get them to respond to sound. So if you like I like to use the analogy of like, if you're buying a house, would you want to be like right next to like a railroad track or a construction site or something, you know, if you move in next to neighbors that are arguing all the time, or would you want to be next to like a babbling brook with like lots of nice bird song and things? The yeah. idea that your acoustic environment and the soundscape around you can play an important role in your success. No, it is not at all lost at me that as she is saying this, there are horns honking and cars beeping because we are recording this in a hotel room in downtown Miami. So uh, just imagine a babbling brook in the background here if you can. Yeah, I love that. Our our lab always talks about how the one choice a coral can make is where it decides to settle. Yeah, yeah. Josh, (laughs) our advisor always says, yeah, this is a coral's only decision they ever get to make. Yeah. <laughs> it better be a good one. Right? Yeah. It's like, uh, it's in real estate, you know, it's like location, location, location. Yeah. You know, it's the most important thing is where, like, where you end up living. And I think that's the catchphrase <laughs> of the episode. I love yeah. it. That's a great way to explain it, though, because yeah. everyone will get that reference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had to go, I had to go, it was really sweet. There was an elementary school in oh. Massachusetts that actually, like, um, raised some money to donate to Hui's Aww. reef work because um, we have a whole coral reef initiative at mm-hmm. Hui um, called Reef Solutions that's trying to target um, reef restoration and um, monitoring in different ways and they like raised some money to donate to us and so like we went um, and I gave a little talk like to them yeah. and they, I was so impressed at like these kids you know were like seven or eight years old maybe and they knew like a bunch of different types of whales. I asked them like what corals were and they knew already. They were like wow. so on it and they cared awesome. so much, which is exciting. But future marine yeah. biologists. Oh, yeah. Wow. That's so cool. So you already told us a lot about how you got drawn to the ocean. Mm-hmm. And you said that you kind of came into your PhD with a vague idea of what you wanted to study. Mm-hmm. After working on your project, what about this specific topic is so captivating and exciting to you? I think what really motivates me and makes me excited, um, first of all, is like the community of people involved in coral reef ecology and restoration. Like I've just gotten to work with some amazing people Mm -hmm. and in amazing places. Um, But I also feel I really like the fact that my research has, it has fundamentally interest, like it's very interesting in itself and um, answering questions about like how do these animals sense the world around them and how do they use that information to make decisions or decision yes. um, <laughs> but then I also feel like there's I'm working in an area that has really clear applications to 
future, you know, to trying to save the future of corals. And, you know, if we can better understand how they settle, if by putting a speaker down, you can play, you know, play sounds and make a coral settle faster, then you can outplant them faster, right? And, you yeah. know, you can help with actively trying to restore or preserve these ecosystems and these really, really precious and amazing organisms. Like, I just think corals are the coolest things ever. Um, and it makes me sad to think that future generations may not have, like, be able to observe these amazing creatures in the same way that I have. So I, that's what I really like about my work is that it has those connections to, like, to more applied work, to, I've worked with people at NGOs, I've, like, you know, have connections to people in industry and all of that. Like, I think in a PhD, you can end up sometimes working on a very, very narrow topic that it's hard to see, like, the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. And I can definitely see how my work, like, fits into the bigger picture, even though it's a very small part of it. I was going to say, the one thing I liked the most about your presentation was at the end, you talked about how applicable it was and the different uses in restoration. And I think that's something that a lot of reef practitioners, and you said like resorts mm-hmm. and hotels, that's something super easy that they can put out on the reef to bring mm-hmm. in more corals and maybe different increase. things like fish and yeah, yeah. increase yeah. recruitment, yeah. increase settlement. That would be awesome. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. So your research has a lot to do with corals. Do you dive at all for your work? Does diving intersect with your line of work? I do dive. Um, I'm an AAUS scientific diver. And I'm also, funny, I'm only a paddy open water diver, but I have been diving scientifically for about two two years now-ish. Um, so I have like 130 dives total. So I still consider myself as kind of fairly new as far as professional diving goes. You know, I work with a lot of people who have like hundreds or thousands of dives and I'm definitely um and or have been diving for like decades or more um and that's definitely not my experience but I'm like I love it and every time I get the opportunity to do it I learn something new um and yeah it's definitely a pretty significant part of my dissertation like I would not be able to do the work that I do without diving yeah so it's is most of your diving then in the Virgin Islands, or have you also dove up north at all? I mean, I had to get trained up north, yeah. so we had to do what's whole. A lot of our uh, our training dives for the scientific dive program are all like off the pier there, basically. So it's kind of like seventy feet of cold and dark, and you know you. They do, they run the classes in June or July when it's like the warmest, yeah. but you're still in like like a five or seven mil and with the hood and it's just, it's not super pleasant. Yeah. Um, but it's really nice because when you, if you get learned to dive there and you do your training dives and then if you're, if you're like me and you get to go to the tropics for yes. actual work, it feels so much easier <laughs> and like so much nicer. Um, yeah, but most of my, the majority of my field work has been in the Virgin Islands. I've gotten like a re- really cool opportunity last year to go to the Maldives for mm. actually for uh, some work by the World Bank. They had they were doing um, basically a workshop on kind of different digital technologies for climate solutions um, to present to the government there. And I was able to go and talk about acoustics as one of those technologies. So I got to do some dives like in the Pacific, which I hadn't done before. That's wow. amazing. Yeah. So so far it's all been like it's been pretty focused and like I've done a lot of diving on the same like eight sites yeah. um on St. John, but I'm very excited now to like go and do it in more Expand places. That, mm-hmm. Yeah. There are literally 
don't know if it's hundreds or thousands of islands, but like yeah. Maldives is this huge archipelago, a lot of super remote areas, um, and they're also like super vulnerable to sea level rise mm-hmm. right now, yeah. which was really evident when I was there. The main capital, um, Malé, is like it's literally like less than a meter. Like you can walk down and like the water's right there, oh and you gosh. can see that you know as it's rising, like they are having more people are coming and um, to that main island. And so it's really, really dense. There's a lot of development, also development for resorts Mm -hmm. um, and the environmental protections in place right now to actually manage the reefs and protect them are really not sufficient. So that was kind of, it was kind of hard to see that. Um, But it was also really exciting to see a lot of like young people in their government who are like, who really care and want to be able to gather more data to make better management decisions. Yeah. But yeah, so it's sort of like, it's really interesting going to other places, you know, and getting like kind of a different view of, you know, what their, what their reefs look like and what, how they value them and that kind of thing, you know? Well, and when you're directed or when you're impacted so directly, Mm -hmm. it's, I don't want to say it's easy to see the importance, but I mean, the importance of protecting your ecosystem becomes very evident when you're so directly impacted by what's going on in the environment. I feel like oftentimes in a country as large as ours with a lot of inter, like a lot of land that doesn't touch the ocean, Mm -hmm. it's easy for people to forget how directly impacted we all are by the ocean and us like people in coastal communities, like both of ours um, probably see it more so than people in the center of the United States. But um, yeah, I, I know that, I've had lots of conversations with people who just seem to think that the ocean does not impact them at all, Yeah, which is not the case. Yeah. It doesn't matter where on earth you are. The the big blue 71% is oh, yeah. doing a lot for us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for those of us who are like insulated maybe from the, like these obvious climate effects and like mm-hmm. do not see that like sea level rise and mm-hmm. how it's changing things, like it's easy to kind of still put some blinders on and say like, oh, climate change is a problem, but like, it's not my it, problem. Yeah, is it a real, is it's not affecting me and my day-to-day life. And you go to like, like these Pacific, small Pacific island nations, right? Like it's not, for them, it's not a debate about whether or not like, oh, is climate change, is it, you know, man-made, is it yeah. whatever? It's like, this is their life right now. And mm-hmm. they are seeing their islands start to shrink and disappear, right? Yep. And I think that's why you see them being so active at like, at the UN and other places yes. was kind of like pleading for these wealthier, richer nations that are that are the source of most of these, that like cause the majority of the emissions and do not are not going to like see the majority of the impacts, right? right. It's disproportionate mm-hmm. based on like who's producing versus who's being affected. Yeah. Um like it just yeah, I it, it's really hard to like try to sometimes bring that home to people and I think like coral reefs are at least a really good example of an ecosystem that like people kind of see the value and see the vibrance of it and Mm -hmm. like everybody you know everyone loves finding Nemo it's like and then you show them bleached reef or you and you kind of can bring home the idea of like these fish are you know the fish are gone the coral are gone and like people care about it yeah and at least maybe you know want to change it so it's interesting I feel like coral may be one of like I would almost characterize coral as charismatic, which is interesting yeah. because the usually charismatic fauna fall into this like I have a face, 
I'm closely related to humans. Like I'm yeah. a mammal. I'm a big organism that mm-hmm. makes mm-hmm. you I'm feel. Yes. Yeah. I'm adorable. Like I'm a manatee or I'm a whale a shark. A sea turtle. I'm a sea turtle. Yeah. yeah. Like things that have a face that are cute that we connect ourselves to because they're similar in size or they're mm-hmm. similar in lifestyle history or whatever. Um, so it's interesting for something that's not only an invertebrate, but also an invertebrate that is sessile, that is long lived, <laughs> that mm-hmm. is like just very, very different in life history oh, yeah. than yeah. we are or that we can even closely relate to. So it's, it's cool to me to see that kind of ecosystem or that kind of organism be something that so many people connect to and care about. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's, it's like almost charismatic yeah. for an yeah. invertebrate, you know? Yeah. I guess, I mean, it's kind of like, they're sort of like, I don't know, like the redwoods of the ocean or something, yeah. you know, like, like people, again, like trees, you don't really anthropomorphize them in the same way that you do like the cute, um, manatee. cute yeah, <laughs> yeah. The manatee or the panda or whatever. Yeah. Um, but like people, I think still like experience a feeling of grandeur or awe when they're like mm-hmm. in the presence of like you know these like like rainforests or these sort of beautiful like natural structures and ecosystems and i think reefs like whether or not you really know anything about them whether or not you even know if corals are alive which yeah. like, people don't necessarily <laughs> um i think when you see a healthy reef right like you can't help but be kind of like moved by it and moved by the like i think you can see how this is clearly something that like took a long time to grow and come to the point where it is and like I don't know I get very yeah. kind of you know I'm like touchy I'm feely I'm about getting it right <laughs> when I like see corals and I just think about like I don't know me as like a little human like, yeah. looking at yeah. corals that are probably like decades or hundreds of years oh, older yeah. than I am you know um and I, I think do that I, do I sometimes cry in my mask absolutely yes. <laughs> like I think I think that is something that's like very transferable that like people snorkeling you know they feel that they see like they see the colorful fish and stuff and maybe it has to do with like the literal little colorfulness of the yeah. vibrancy of the reef but like yeah they're definitely charismatic I like that oh I want to go diving now I know <laughs> now I just want to get in the water yeah <laughs> Do you want to talk to us about, like, your journey to becoming a diver or any challenges you've had to overcome? Sure. It's just, it's sort of, um, I think that sometimes in conversations about diving, it's not always, I think, brought, I mean, I think you guys are bringing to light, you know, a lot of this um, with this podcast, which is great, but there are, like, significant monetary hurdles, you know, to Mm -hmm. diving and even physical ones, and Mm -hmm. also, you know, the gender dynamics are pretty skewed, and I won't say that I, like, really had any major obstacles, but I did come into my grad program um, very much feeling like, ooh, I'm not a diver yet, and feeling, and kind of observing the people around me, people, like, at my similar levels, um, of education, like I felt very well educated. It's like, oh yeah, I know like what's underwater, yeah. even though I've never been down there. Um, but I also felt like a little bit of this feeling of like, hmm, if I like, what if, like, what if I go scuba diving and I'm really scared and I can't do it? Like, does that mean I can't be a marine biologist? And so mm-hmm. I was like, I was worried about that when I went into my training about like, is this going to be like a scary thing because you know I struggle with anxiety and it's like it's an extreme sport mm-hmm. it's life-threatening you know yeah. it can like it can be dangerous um and I think what's amazing about diving and what like really I don't know was an amazing experience for me is that you know when you do it first of all it's super safe if you mm-hmm. follow you know if you 
plan your dive, dive your plan, you, you know, yep. <laughs> dive with your buddies. If you don't, if you follow the rules, you know, it, you have it, like you take precautions and very rarely is something bad going to happen, right? It's pretty rare yep. for like accidents, especially if you're diving, you know, within reasonable limits, but also like it, it just is, it was a really different experience than I thought it was going to be. It was like, I was much more calm and the uh, like feeling of being underwater. It's like, super meditative mm-hmm. in a way it's like you can kind of just like let your thoughts go and like try to like be in the ocean yeah. and like you focus on your task but it's like it's very it was just like really um being the first time that I went underwater you know I like I just felt so much more kind of relaxed and happy to be there than maybe I even expected you know it didn't feel stressful mm-hmm. and that like you know kind of chasing that feeling is you know definitely why I want to like continue advance and get more certifications and do more dives everywhere you know um but I definitely like you know growing up my family was not the type of family that was gonna go on scuba diving trips but like our idea of a cool ocean vacation was like let's go sit by the beach yeah Mm -hmm. um and in college I thought about getting certified but it was like seven hundred dollars or something to do that class you know and that just wasn't something that was feasible um and I'm really lucky right now that you know there's funding in my graduate program for students to like to get certified and to like cover equipment and things like that but it's a very expensive hobby you know (laughs) it's like not and traveling to dive is also like very expensive so it's not you know necessarily accessible to everyone um and I've been lucky also that I've had a lot of great female mentors in diving Mm. and like I dive a lot with like female teams and it's great but I also acknowledge that like it, that's not necessarily the norm every, or the majority. I think that I was on like a recreational dive trip once and like a couple, you know, sitting next to me was like, oh, like I've never seen like three women diving together alone because I was there with like two buddies. And I was like, yeah. huh, okay, <laughs> interesting. Yeah. You know, and I like, you see that changing and I think there's like, there's so many like awesome, like young female divers like doing the work. Um, but I like, I just like to see that, you know, I acknowledge and I don't, always place myself in like I don't know I'm just not the same type of person necessarily as like my friends who are like dive masters and like have been doing it for you know forever um it's still like something that I'm like new to and like Mm -hmm. bring myself into the community so yeah that's really awesome and I think you bring up a lot of good points like diving is not always monetarily accessible for people Mm -hmm. um and I'm sure that has something to do with why we see certain demographics consistently being more represented in the dive community is that yeah. it's it's people with access to the resources to do this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the reasons that I became an instructor is that I wanted to dive and I knew there was no way I'm going to be able to dive as much as I want to yeah. with the resources that I have unless I'm doing it as a way to bring income in. Mm-hmm. So that's something that like led me to get my dive master and instructor certifications is that I, I wanted to dive and I knew there's no way that like me just sending money out to dive, I'm yeah. either not going to be able to dive as much as I want to, or I'm not going to have any money left. <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> there's, um, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. And eventually I'd really like to, and we got, we've, we have some messages from some listeners. We hear you. We see you. We're getting to you. Yeah. Um, but about some ways to maybe make um, dive equipment or even training more accessible to mm-hmm. student bodies. 
So eventually I'd love to get on our website like some sort of a list of resources that people can use. So if anyone out there has an existing list or any ideas about um, ways that we can make uh, like some sort of a succinct platform where you can find resources to get into diving or gear rentals or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, If there's any ideas out there, please send them our way. We'd really like to get involved with that cause. I was just going to say, this would be a good time. We can put an aside in or put in our show notes. We have a couple links to some different scholarships and grants that allow students to get funding for training, advanced training, gear. Mm -hmm. So those would be really awesome to share with everyone. Absolutely. And we did go ahead and put that information in the show notes for you today. And also, we're looking at getting a little page up on our website for you guys as a resource to some of those things. Um, But yeah, lots of really great resources for grants and scholarships for training, as well as gear and other things. And if you guys have more resources that you know of, this is us reaching out to you, our community. send them our way. Let us figure it out together and we can create a mutual resource that lots of people can access. Now for the fun questions. The fun questions. These are always my favorite to ask. Okay. You've been diving a lot in the Virgin Islands. Mm -hmm. Um, What is your best dive snorkel water related story? It could be like on one of your work dives or just a fun dive. Even a training dive. It doesn't have to be the Virgin (laughs) Islands. Yeah. Well, I do think, I mean, I don't know, one of the, I don't know, the coolest dive experiences that I, like, remember recently is we, um, just coming up at the end, like, it was, I think, maybe one of our last dives on our, my last trip to the Virgin Islands last fall, and it was, like, we're all kind of stressed out end of the week, and, like, had just, you know, picked up our last kind of pieces of equipment um, off of a site, and my buddy and I were coming up, and we just noticed that we were, like, we were on our safety stop, and we were, like, in this, like, forest of jellyfish, basically. Like, all of these moon jellies all around us. And it, like, really felt like a scene from, like, a science fiction thing mm-hmm. or, like, I don't, like, a nature documentary, like, just in every direction. And we had been noticing throughout that trip that it's like, hmm, sometimes we dive the site, and there's all these jellies here, and sometimes they're not. And it was sort of, like, there's something in that, like, probably some that's telling you something about the environment. But it was just super cool, and we were just hanging out there yeah. for, you know, for a few minutes, and we are kind of, like go up to the jellies and like pat them and I I really love like gelatinous zooplankton or you know jelly things in the water yeah. column um it's not what I study now but those were like the the worms that I got my start studying yeah. were these like fluorescent blue worms from the mm. deep sea um so I really I have a soft spot for anything like jelly and gelatinous a soft spot <laughs> for jelly. I, I was not to do that that, that was good I was gonna say, we love our squishy corals too. They're the best. We love a good squishy coral. A good MCAP. Yeah. (laughs) I love that MCAP. They're so like big and mystery. Mm -hmm. I know. I like to call them Cheerio corals. They're just like. I think my favorite squishy coral is either the Musa angulosa or the Mycetophilias are also really beautiful. I know. Every time I see one, I get the same picture of this. Always like microscope mode. Yeah. Yes. One looks right next to one of our our like long term sound track like like Mm -hmm. sound monitoring sites, and it's like I always go to it and like I always like catches my eye because I always kind of forget it's there and I'm like oh. Because yes. they're not very common on our site. Oh, they're so How are you beautiful. doing this year, my yeah. friend? <laughs> uh, I want a mycetophilia friend. I know. I'm going to go check in on one. <laughs> I should name it. Yes. Yeah. 
This one is Fred. Yeah. Your dive story, though, reminded me. You mentioned Nemo earlier, mm-hmm. and I instantly thought of the scene where they're in the jelly. Yes. <laughs> That's what it Just felt like. I, seriously. Like, I mean, we weren't trying to, to jump through them. Yes. It, like, was going on, like, all around us every direction. It was, like, it was very cool. Was awesome. I had divers a couple weeks ago that were very concerned about jellyfish. Mm-hmm. We were on a night dive, and um, I guess one of their, like, light beams came across a moon jelly, which... Mm-hmm like, doesn't concern me at all, right? Yeah. And I hear them, like, making very concerned noises behind me. noises underwater. Yeah, and I, like, yeah. turned around to see, like, I was like, oh, no, is there, like, uh, like, is a, a shark come by or a barracuda? Like, I'm mm-hmm. trying to imagine what they could be nervous about underwater at night, right? And I turn around, and they're just, like, have their light beam held on this <laughs> jellyfish, and they're just, like, squealing. They're just like, yeah. And I was like, what? I was like, like what's cool. going on? Yeah, yeah, I was like, are you okay? So, like, I didn't realize that people were nervous about jellyfish until yeah. that moment, really. Um, but yeah, every jellyfish we saw the rest of the dive, they mm-hmm. got very, they like swim all the way around mm-hmm. it. So, um, do you have any words to the wise about how, like, about jellyfish and whether they're something that warrant being nervous about? And I mean, whatnot? it definitely depends on the jelly, right? It makes sense if you're going in the water anywhere to like do a little Google, do a little research to be like, is there a jellyfish in the water here that are harmful to me i think yeah my, my experience most of the places in the caribbean where i've been they're like they're not an issue you know i i have been stung by something in the water that was mm-hmm. probably a jelly or other nidarian and like it hurt it wasn't pleasant but mm-hmm. it's not like not life-threatening yeah um and i usually when i snorkel or dive i usually like cover up my arms and mm-hmm. legs with leggings or a rash guard or something just because like you know you don't want to get spr- scraped or anything um yeah yeah so i understand people's concern like they do sting but yeah. a lot of them do not necessarily sting at like levels that are going to hurt a human or be dangerous yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and as long as you're wearing the right protection for the mm-hmm. environment you're in you should be fine yeah mm-hmm. also dan and patty often recommend using vinegar if you get mm-hmm. stung by a jellyfish please don't pee on it it doesn't work yep um, oftentimes the pressure <laughs> Yeah, myth busted. Oftentimes the pressure from a urine stream will actually cause the nidocytes, which are the stinging cells in jellyfish and corals, to fire. So if you have like a tentacle still on your leg and you try to pee on it, it will make it sting you. So please don't do that. And let's maybe use vinegar instead, which will inactivate the stinging cells so that you don't get stung more. Fun facts. Little myth busters for you. Yeah. (laughs) You can also get, like, little, like, alcohol swab things that are, like, for sting relief that, um, I don't know if it's, like, a vinegar or, like, Mm -hmm. acid-based thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I know that I've used that on a sting before, and it, like, it made it, like, the pain basically go away almost instantly. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Heard it here first. Yeah. (laughs) Scoop. Okay, so you mentioned that you like a lot of the squishy ocean critters. Are they some of your favorite marine organisms, or what is your favorite marine organism? I would say I do, like, I love them. And, I mean, I love corals. I like just every coral in general. You know, like, I just enjoy sitting and staring at them. Um, But I do think whenever I see a polyheat, um, polyheat being, like, these worms, I get really excited, even Mm -hmm. if it's just, like, you know, like a little bristle worm that's not really 
doing anything particular. I just like big, I like worms, which is, I think, a sort of unusual for maybe a favorite marine organism. I um, like maybe it. not. I, yeah. yeah, probably not at this conference. I think there's probably more. Yeah, yes. here than <laughs> In the general public. But I just think people should know that marine worms are a lot prettier and cooler and more like weird looking than your like typical earthworm. Yeah. There's all sorts of like scale worms and bristle worms and some of them are very colorful or iridescent and like beautiful um some of them are like not so great for corals some of them will eat coral which is not great but they're like i just think they're very beautiful and like a little aliens I know. yeah my favorite one to see on dives is bobbit worms oh yeah. yes they're so cool. Their jaws and all the iridescence at night is amazing. Seeing like the YouTube videos with bobbit worms that come up and just like snap a fish. Yeah. It's like Unbelievable. scary. Yeah. yeah. But very cool. <laughs> I have a question, a polychaete question. Wait, I think this is a polychaete. Uh oh. It's a Christmas tree worm? Are those polychaetes? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you know the answer to this, or I don't even really know if it's a question, but I <laughs> I always I don't know. I guess I didn't really look at what a Christmas tree worm looked like when it was retracted, mm. but I recently noticed that they all have this little like cap that goes over their tube mm. and it has what I have lovingly termed a hood ornament. It has like this mm. little like like I don't even know it how to describe the shape of it. I might post a mm. picture, but um yeah, like some of them can be different colors and like different shapes and stuff. I don't know if you've ever even seen them. I don't know. I mean, I can't say I know that much about Christmas tree worms. That's, I mean, sounds like maybe it's just like a, like ornamentation to, yeah. if they're in the hole to like, have some, I don't know, have yeah. something to deter predators yeah, maybe? maybe it's or spiky or something? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Some of them are weird though. I mean, they like, the worms that I studied in undergrad, they can like, like evert their pharynx and like to take bites out of things like wow. they're like That's they're just so cool. they have all kinds of weird stuff going on i love this answer this, i love the unique answers yeah. this is really this is it i love it <laughs> <laughs> okay what do you have any outside of diving i know you live near the beach do you have any like hobbies outside of work that are beach related or not beach related what do you like to do I feel like it's funny because I feel like for my job I end up doing all of this like outdoorsy like you know mm -hmm. diving kind of like I'm getting sunburned and like being on the water a lot and then my uh, hobbies outside of that are much more like things to do indoors <laughs> I mean I really like I watch a lot of movies like okay. I watch like I really liked when I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, because there were, like, independent movie theaters and, like, a film festival there every year that I, like, have gotten really into. There's a website called Letterboxd, I think, where it's, like, social, it's, like, Goodreads, but for movies. Oh, and everybody, yeah. like, you can clog what you watch and post reviews, so, like, I'm kind of a nerd about that. Um, a real movie buff. We love it. <laughs> um, I also, I don't know, I like, I like to read, I like to bake, um, I crochet and knit some... And I spent a lot of time hanging out with my cat. Um, oh, what's the cat's name? So his full name is Algernon, but it shortens to Algae. Oh. So we just call him Algae. Okay, which shout out to Algae. Works in every every sense. Um, oh. He's a little tuxedo cat that uh, I rescued in DC about six years ago, and I love him. He is a menace. Uh, he loves to scream for dinner and for breakfast <laughs> and all the time and knock plants over and things but oh. he's, he's very sweet 
We... LG could be Shotzi's boyfriend. Okay, I like <laughs> it. We love our podcasts, okay? We, we just love a good podcast. We love a podcast. <laughs> that should be the mascot you should you know we have yeah, a podcast we, we have a tuxedo cat, cat and she every time we sit down to record in our living room she like parkours around she'll be like and we're like, like okay. eat the microphone whenever i'm on a zoom call my cat algae he will just like walk in front like back and forth in front of the camera mm-hmm. or like, go on my lap and it's like people will see me on the call be like okay and i pick up cat and uh, yep and uh, pick up and yeah. Back, yeah. and go away. Shotzi <laughs> likes to come over here and just like nom the corner. She'll just like look at you, direct eye contact, and be like. So actually, <laughs> my cat actually broke my screen that way. Oh, good. So just be careful. Yeah. Uh, if there, if it looks like it's actually chomping, apparently a little one little tooth crack can uh, break your screen huh. and cost a few hundred dollars oh. to fix it. So okay. bad podcast. Pro tip. Yeah. <laughs> but you know. That's what, crazy. What can you do? You yeah. Can't, you can't blame them. <laughs> Just try to be cute. I definitely, I like your answer, though. I definitely have, like, my fair share of, like, indoor and outdoor hobbies. I yeah. Like they kind of, like, balance each other out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been really nice. Also, I, I sing in my spare time. Like, oh, I used yeah. to, um, like, take voice lessons and mm-hmm. stuff. And I joined, like, a community choir on Cape Cod, which is really nice. And we actually last uh, this winter, because winter on Cape Cod is... Yeah. pretty pretty dead there's not yeah. a lot to do so a bunch of students got together and did like put on a musical um, but a musical about grad school so <laughs> it's I called see this. academia and it was a parody of mamma mia um with no official licensing don't yeah. sue us ABBA. <laughs> so, um, it happened but it was like every song was an abba song but with parody lyrics and like a parody story about a grad student being overworked and having to find a balance um, between oh work and hobbies. And this needs to be a full scale production. I it was, know. Honestly, it was so fun. Um, and we like sold out two nights. We had a director of our institution. It was super fun. Wow. So, yeah. Highly recommend any, any grad student get into like a creative outlet of yes. some kind. If it's like, crafting or music or writing or like whatever do something to balance it out because you can't do you can't do the science no no yeah it stretches a different part of your brain too Mm -hmm. that's that's so cool I feel like diving is also one of those activities that you can't think about grad school while you're diving you you gotta think about the coral or whatever you're looking at and it's nice Mm -hmm. because no one can talk to you you know so you can just be like in you know in your head with me with mm-hmm. my thoughts yes even if you're doing work it's like you can't yeah. bother me yeah. yeah i have come to be known as an underwater squealer which is great uh at my defense my professor or my advisor introduced me and said this is Haley, and she likes to squeal underwater and i said oh great awesome. <laughs> so he's not um, an intro yes i was like good this is this is what i'm now known for <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so I have, I'll, like, swim around and see something cute and just be like, ah! and, <laughs> and I'll be like, yeah! <laughs> yes, yep. Okay, let's wrap it up with our last question so that we can get back downstairs yeah. for some sessions. Um, at the top of the episode, we asked you what, like, got you started in the water. Mm-hmm. What keeps you going back? I think it's just... It's hard to describe, but probably the feeling of being un- underwater and in the water, it's like you really feel like you're 
accessing like another world you know and that's why I like study sensory biology is I think about like aquatic animals and it's like they're living in in a world and sensory environment that like we can't even we can't even fathom right we can't even understand what it's like to be that and being in the water like puts us I think as close as we can to like thinking like a fish or like living mm-hmm. you know and I just like love that feeling I love that idea of trying to get like inside the head of another animal and it's just different every time you know even like the same place because like water you know water doesn't stay in the same place and the ocean is always different and you're always going to find something new um so I always I always want to keep you know learning something new about the ocean that's amazing that. yeah well, thank you so much for coming on yeah, our podcast. This is very fun. Yeah, <laughs> we are so excited to have like new and different voices that we just don't usually have access to. So yeah. it's it's been yeah. such a treat. Thank you so much. This is a great kickoff to our week of Benthic's interviews. Too. Yes. Yeah, I'm excited to. I'm very excited for the rest of the talks. I got mine out of the way this morning, and now I can just relax. And yes. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to head on over to our website where you can find information on submitting your great stories for our Fish Tales episodes. Those will come out about once a month and you can find the form to submit your stories online. Our website is under titledteasapparel.com. There's a little header at the top that says to dive for a podcast. And if you hit that link, we also have merch for sale. And you can also find us on Instagram at To Dive For Podcast and on Facebook as well. Don't forget to like and follow and share with your friends. See you guys next week. Bye. You know, if you stick around to the end of the episode every week, we give you a fun fact. And this week's fun fact is brought to you by polychaete worms. Um, Specifically, we're going to talk about Christmas tree worms, which we talked about in the episode. And my fun fact for you guys is that Christmas tree worm's scientific name is Spirobranchus giganteus. And this is because the Christmas tree-like appendage is actually partially used um, as a lung, hence the branchus part, B-R-A-N-C-H. And that means that they're using this Christmas tree or spiral lung to help them breathe, as well as helping them filter food into their mouth um, out of the water column. So yeah, Spirobranchus giganteus.